Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I am joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawerson Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Thank you for joining us one more time, Carlos. How are you? My, my pleasure. I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing good, good. Excited about our last episode. We've had a lot of feedback and a lot of listeners, so hopefully we can continue on that trend. Yes, our publicity department's doing a great job. As I said, you get what you pay for. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to thank everybody who's been listening to the podcast and, and offering uh, their support and, and their feedback, and we're very excited uh, to continue doing this. So on this episode, uh, we'll pick up where we left off, where we discussed last time the meaning of Christian mysticism to discuss and, and get into what is the origins of, of Christian mysticism. So, Carlos, why don't you kick us off and, and start giving us some information on that? Sure. Uh, but before I do that, I think there's uh, something I, want, I, I, I thought after our, our last conversation that should be emphasized, which actually you know, belongs, let's say, the last chat we had, episode one. It belongs with episode one, but it's the best way to begin with the second one, which is that uh, mysticism is uh, as a human phenomenon, right? And there are philosophers who, who, who study mysticism as a phenomenon that is common to all humans and then try to extract meaning from what that tells us about human beings. It's a human trait, right? So that, you know, we call, we call mod modern uh, evolved human beings, we call them homo sapiens or, you know, uh, knowing or reasoning human. But what mysticism um, tells us is that our species could, could also be called homo religiosus, you know, religious man, or, you know, in the old sexist language, you know, but also mystical beings. Uh, so what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that there are human beings who have these experiences, and throughout time on earth, all the time that human beings have inhabited earth, we find mystics. And it's the ultimate in human optimism, because as I said last time, and we talked about it a little bit, uh, there are many ways to, to look at mysticism, and some people look at it negatively as some kind of mental illness or, or self-delusion. Well, at least that's, so, that's how they like know, to define it. Yes. Uh, and those dictionary definitions I read pretty much said, you know, this is all self-delusion. But even if it is, you know, let's suppose that it is. And let's suppose it's a medical condition. Still, it is the ultimate in human optimism because the basic belief that crosses a uh, religious lines, you know, from religion to religion to religion, is that human beings are capable of experiencing reality at its utmost, and that it's a good place, right? And, and that the ultimate end of human beings is precisely what mystics say that they experience. Let's, that goes back to the discussion we had on the last episode, where the, these mystics are sort of crossing through a portal, into yes. uh, in, into another dimension, another realm, however you want to you want to call it. But going back to what you're saying now, it, it's it's where, as God created us, where we're supposed to eventually, where we were created to be, uh, in the end. Yes, and um, well, we'll we'll get uh, in this conversation. We we'll probably end up getting to Saint Augustine of Hippo, fourth and fifth century, 
He wrote an autobiography, uh, perhaps the most famous autobiography in Western culture, uh, The Confessions of St. Augustine. And he says at the very beginning, he's talking to God and he says, you have made us for yourself and we are restless until we rest in you. That is the proper end of human existence. And um, of course, this, this comes from Neoplatonism, a, a Greek philosophical school. We'll get to that today, but that's, that's the bottom line. And I love to use that term, bottom line. The bottom line is, this is the foundation on which uh, mysticism rests. It's the assumption that human beings can merge with the divine. That's in Christianity. You know, in Buddhism, they explain it differently. Hinduism has a different take on it. But in Christianity, the purpose of human existence is to achieve what mystics claim they achieve forever, right? Not just momentarily, but those momentary uh, glimpses of the divine are a foretaste of what life will be like for humans in eternity. Yeah, that seems to be the the common thread uh, among the mystics. Is, is where they are getting a glimpse into what our our future, for lack of a better term, where we're going to be when we are in the presence presence of God. So taking that into consideration, and I'm I'm not sure if you're if you wanted to add something else, but how did the Christian mysticism start in uh, with Christianity at the at the founding of the church? Well, it has it has roots in its environment, uh, geographical environment where Christianity began. And its roots are Jewish, of course, because Judaism is the parent religion of Christianity. Jesus was a Jew, and his 12 apostles were all Jews. Uh, the apostle Paul, too, was a Jew, and, and the first Christian communities were Jewish. It took, it took them, uh, actually, uh, several decades to kind of figure out uh, how to include non-Jews into the Christian community. And let's call it the church. So there are uh, Jewish roots, and then there are non-Jewish roots. And the, the Middle East at the time of uh, Jesus, it was like a bubbling cauldron of, of different religions all competing uh, for, for followers. Uh, within Judaism, there were uh, different uh, interpretations of what it meant to be Jewish. But outside of Judaism, there were many other uh, religions uh, with their own take on mysticism. The most important ones for Christianity, though, uh, and we'll get to this, are Greek. And it might surprise some listeners that it's really from Greek philosophy. Not from Jewish history. Right. Because, well, by, by that time, you know, by, let's say, first century, there were many Jews who were it's so deeply ingrained with ideas from Greek culture. The Greek word for, uh, for, for Greece is Hellas, and to call something Hellenistic is to say that it has, uh, uh, it's part of Greek culture, which was spread eastwards from Greece by Alexander the Great. And you hear centuries before, before Christ, centuries before Christ. Right, and you, and you read a lot and you see a lot about, a lot of complaints uh, from the Jewish community of, of Hellenism uh, w within their ranks. Yes, well, because uh, Hellenism included uh, the pantheon of Greek gods, 
the polytheism. Uh, and, and we'll get to this in a few minutes. I mean, there's there's a very strong monotheistic strain in Greek philosophy. And that's that's very, that's key to understanding Christian mysticism. But the, the Jews of Jesus's day, including the Apostle Paul, were, they knew Greek philosophy. And actually, some listeners might be surprised to hear this too, that the very first words of the Gospel of John come straight out of Stoic Greek philosophy. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Greek word for word is logos, and that is a Stoic concept. The fact that it's it's the logos that creates the universe. The mind of the divine creates the universe. And that's right there, and the Word became flesh. See, and that's the basic claim of the Christian religion, is that God became a human being. But the way that that is expressed in the Gospel of John is by using a Greek philosophical term. But before we get to the Greeks, let's back up to Judaism. Yeah, I was going to ask. I, I, yeah. I know there has to be some, some Jewish influence, yes. Uh, yes. some Jewish and, antecedents as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, anybody who reads the the Hebrew scriptures uh, often referred to as the Old Testament immediately encounters stories of human beings who converse with God. Abraham, for starters. Abraham has conversations with God. Abraham actually like argues with God at, at times. Uh, Jacob ends up uh, also having an intimate relationship with God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of the patriarchs, they all have a, a way of communicating, very immediate way of communicating according to the narrative, right? So there you have the Jewish assumption that human beings can communicate with God and have a relationship with God. And it carries through the entire Old Testament. And you can find the seeds of Christian mysticism most intensely in the Psalms, right? The 150 Psalms, each and every one of them in various ways, in different ways, is, is mysticism distilled into poetry. And uh, for instance, the psalm that, that goes, um, as a heart or a deer, right? And then let's call it a deer. As a deer longs for flowing springs, so longs my soul for you, O God. My tears have, have been my food day and night. Men around me say, where is your God? And the, that psalm continues in a beautiful way to, with, with this dialogue uh, about, you know, seeing God. It is, is the psalmist's deepest, fondest desire, thirst for God. So, you know, that's exactly the same thing Augustine will end up saying. You, know, you made us for yourself. We're restless until we rest in you. But, I, I, you know, we could cite dozens and dozens of, of psalms as examples. And maybe in future chats, we'll, we'll have a chance to do that. But the prophets, the other books, the uh, the second back part of, of the Old Testament, you know, when you put it on a table, it's, it's, if, you, if you have Genesis looking at you at the back end are the prophets. And who were the prophets? The prophets were human beings who had communication with God. You know, and God was giving them messages to give to the people of Israel. One can, one can almost say the ultimate mystic was Adam and Eve. Oh well, yeah, they were, but that's before before they got into trouble. 
before <laughs> obviously yeah before they and even when they got into trouble they had a very a very yeah. stern talking to <laughs> my yes, god they, but yes, they did but they, they conversed with god yes yeah i mean just and, that yeah. that passage where after they after they messed up that god is walking through uh looking for them and they they know he's around coming to look for them and they were hiding and covering themselves with, right. with leaves and uh, um, you know that's got to be the ultimate missing you know you hear god walking towards you you know and you know yeah. who it is and you know who's coming and you know whether whether that is metaphorical or not does doesn't make any difference for for the point of where where do christians find their their mysticism right and um adam and eve uh, had great intimacy with god book of genesis uh, before before they screw up and they get chased out of the garden of eden but that intimacy is precisely what jewish mystics christian mystics pagan mystics that intimacy is what mystics search for long for that's what the what the the, the psalm that uh, i mentioned is longing for it's a dear thirst for flowing waters so thirsts my soul for you oh god yeah well so the, the old testament is full of mystics uh but if you look at the prophets you begin to notice something the prophets are having uh intimate relations with the divine with god with yahweh but he gives them messages to give to his people his chosen people and the chosen people don't listen and many of those prophets end up having a very difficult time so being a mystic is not necessarily uh you know a good thing in in human terms you know it's not going to win you friends it's not a prestige position and it's not a prestige position you might end up being thrown into a well <laughs> it's happened to jeremiah and i'm laughing because you know there's a pathos behind the the task being that's that's always being given to the prophets which is to say to tell people things they don't want to hear and in many ways this continues through in the christian tradition too so at the time of Jesus, you, know, you have that tradition, which is very rich. And there's also Hellenistic Greek philosophy filtering in. Obvious. It's, it's just so obvious to anybody who digs deep enough that, uh, you know, Jesus and his apostles were already working with this concept that the human being is, is composed of soul and body. Now, where does that come from? Does that come from Judaism or does it come from Greek philosophy or both? And the answer is in the time of Jesus, it's, it's both. Because if you notice, if you read the Gospels carefully, especially the first three Gospels, the so-called synoptic Gospels, you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees disagreeing about whether or not there are spiritual beings like angels. And the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the body after death whereas the pharisees do and they're always having disagreements and they're trying to trick jesus constantly in, in the synoptic gospels into saying something that they can pin on him as, as heresy but in fact the disagreement between the sadducees and the pharisees is so profound that they they consider each other heretics but the idea of a soul right you find in the new testament too and you find also, and this is a very uh, important part of the puzzle that we'll have to return to later, 
you also find Jesus is not just healing people of their illnesses. What's he doing in addition to that? He is driving demons out of their bodies, right? So the very concept that a human body can be possessed by a spirit being is part and parcel of the Christian gospel. We'll have to return to that uh, at some other later point. Yeah, and I, and, he, and, and I just, now that you brought up Jesus and uh, I guess I should go back and 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 edit my previous comment of Adam being the ultimate mystics because in actuality it was Jesus as, well, Jesus. as, as in human form who was the ultimate mystic because not only could he see what was going on in temporal time in the temporal realm he could see what was going on simultaneously in in the spiritual realm and, and you find that most intensely in the Gospel of John where he's constant, Jesus is constantly talking about his father and telling people that he's come from somewhere else. He's come from where the father is. He's come from the father. No one else knows who the father is but him. And um, this will create all sorts of intellectual problems for Christians for centuries. You know, how could God be human and divine at the same time in, in the person of Jesus, right? So, yeah, Jesus is the ultimate mystic. And if you read the Gospels, uh, again, if you read them carefully, you notice that Jesus is always trying to get away from people and go off by himself to pray. <laughs> I, I laugh because I think that's one of the funniest things in the Gospels is that Jesus is being hounded by those who want to be cured by him or to listen to him. But he needs time to pray. He needs time off. And what does he do during that time off? He goes off somewhere and prays, usually some very deserted place, right, where nobody can find him. Uh, so, yes, you're right. Uh, Jesus can be seen as the ultimate mystic. And and actually, uh, this is what Christian mystics and the Christian mystical tradition will constantly aim to do, is to be as much like Jesus as possible. That is what we were commanded to do. Yes, and, and then at the time of Christ, there was another group that's not mentioned in the Gospels. But now we know a lot about them because of the scrolls that were found near the Dead Sea in the late 1940s, the so-called Dead Sea Scrolls. We know that there was a community of pious Jews known as the Essenes who lived apart from other Jews, right? They, they lived out in the desert. And they, they had this, this mystical bent. And now practically all New Testament experts are sure that John the Baptist was an Essene, right? And that this rite of baptism was a mystical rite carried out by the Essenes, which John the Baptist then, you know, brings to the Jewish community. And, and what's his message? Repent. Another, another unpopular message. Repent. So we have the Essenes. Are, are a source for Christian mysticism. But we don't know much about them, and especially since the New Testament doesn't mention them, we don't know exactly how many in the Essene community ended up becoming followers of Jesus. We don't know. Uh, but the Essenes uh, survived until the Romans came, and, and um, basically when, when there was a Jewish rebellion in, in the late 60s of the first century, and the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and surrounding areas in 70 AD. That's the end of the Essenes, as far as we know. And they buried their texts, 
right? So that the texts would be protected for, for future generations. They're not discovered until the 1940s. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, was a mystic. He makes this clear. He, he has a constant relationship with Christ. He said, and goes as far as to say, you know, it's no longer I who live in me. It's Christ living in me. And in, in a very cryptic passage, it's, it's phrased in, in third person. So you don't know if he's talking about himself. But he says, I know man who has been to the third heaven. Whether it happened in the body or out of the body, I can't tell you. But he was there. He got there. And that is the first mention of a mystical experience in the New Testament and, by any of Jesus' followers. And, you know, and in, and in talking about Paul, there, there's also that, that passage where he speaks about the thorn in his side and how he asked right. God three times to remove it. And we don't know what that thorn in his side is. Uh, some have speculated as he was losing his vision and uh, that was, uh, he wanted to be able to continue writing and, and, and reading letters right. and, and obviously you want to continue having your vision. But for whatever, whatever it was, he writes that God told him, no, I'm not going to remove it. My grace is sufficient right. for you. And, you know, that's like asking, you know, right now you're praying and you ask God for uh, for whatever it is you may be asking him for, for good weather tomorrow. And, you know, you hear God's voice saying, no, I have other plans. Yes. And that's that would at least me, that would freak me out. If I got a, you know, an answer like that, that I'm so sure that I can, I can write it down. Well, so, uh, Paul, uh, in the monastic tradition, and we'll get to monasticism eventually, but monks uh, interpret that thorn in the flesh in various ways. But one way, which is, is, is very commonly mentioned uh, in monastic literature, monks say that the thorn in his flesh was his temptation to be proud because of his mystical experiences and, and his close relationship with God would make him proud. And that that is, is not a virtue, being proud or considering yourself better than other people. And he does uh, mention that a lot, uh, that he right. that he is a very proud person and he struggles with that. Yep. Uh, and um, he, he's not the only mystic who will focus on that as one of the hardest uh, struggles. And then, of course, there are other in monastic tradition. They they also assume that the thorn in the flesh might be sexual temptation. But at anybody's guess, it, is that is that precisely just a guess? Because he, Paul doesn't tell us what it is. Well, in in my opinion, that that passage and is so beautifully written that whatever any person reading it is suffering at the moment. It fits perfectly into their, into their life, and they can relate yes. to it. Uh, you know, yes. if, if if it was vision or it was pride, someone who isn't proud wouldn't be able to relate to it. Someone who isn't going blind wouldn't be able to relate to it. But since it's just written a thorn in the flesh, something that just continues to torment me, but God wants to keep it there for whatever reason. Yep. Allows us to to be able to relate to that because we all have our own issues and we all have our own crosses to bear and, and what we're dealing with at the time. And in terms of effectiveness, I think the message works best, leaving it up to uh, interpretation. Yes. And, uh, you know, it, 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 in the classical tradition, in St. Paul's day, 
there are many things that you didn't talk about openly the way that people do now, you know, especially, uh, you know, personal things, personal temptations you might have. You, you kind of keep them to yourself. You just tell people, I'm being tempted. You don't give the details. But Paul is the Christian arch mystic. Let's call him that. He's not just a mystic. He's the arch mystic. And his letters are full of mystical passages. So later Christians will turn to Paul. And especially of all the Gospels, the one that mystics will turn to most often will be the Gospel of John. And the Old Testament book that they will turn to most often will be the book of Psalms. But I, uh, I almost forgot to mention one of the most important books in the Christian mystical tradition is the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, which, you know, talking about sex is the most erotic book in the entire Bible, which Christian mystics have interpreted as a romance between the human soul and God. That's who the bride is, is the human soul. And the groom is God. You know, and they're talking in very, very overtly erotic language. Oh, how beautiful your breasts are and stuff like that, <laughs> which might shock some people. Uh, but in fact, Song of Songs, also known as the Song of Solomon, is, is the book that had received the greatest amount of commentary for over a thousand years, the period known as the Middle Ages. That was the book that monks and mystics and theologians turned to, to uh, as a, a, a metaphor, a metaphorical long poem about the relationship between the human soul and God. So that's a mystical book too. Although, you know, it might shock some people who have never read it before to go ahead and read it and see that it's, it's, it's very erotic. And here's one thing that should be mentioned at this point too, that love is the essential component of Christian mysticism. Love. And there are various words that are used for this, but for now, let's just leave it at that. That love, it's the, the relationship between the human and the divine is interpreted and spoken of as a love relationship. And some of the most beautiful love poetry that exists is in mystical literature. And when we get, when we get there, um, there's a Spanish mystic, St. John of the Cross, Juan de la Cruz. Uh, he's got some love poems. I've given them to students to read, and, and I've asked them, what do you think this poem is all about? And of course, they all interpret it as, as a secular poem about you know, love between two humans. But actually, John of the Cross is talking about you know, love of God. So um, th this is the Jewish side of Christian mysticism, you know, brought, brought to fruition in, in a very different way from the way in which Jewish mysticism would develop over the past two millennia. Uh, there are plenty of Jewish mystics, but Jewish mysticism ends up being, of course, very different from Christian mysticism in that, you know, Christ plays no role and we'll get back to that so um so so we see the the influences of both pagan greek philosophy in in christian mysticism and and the obvious jewish roots of of christian mysticism which do you is one do you think one influence more than the other or one was more important uh in in developing christian mysticism I think they're both equally important, um, and you, you you can't 
distinguish, you know, in terms of percentage, which which one has the highest percentage influence because they're so intertwined and especially because they were already intertwined at the time of Jesus that uh, they're, they're basically inseparable and the Christian nature of Christian mysticism is not in any way negated by the presence of Jewish and pagan Greek elements. The the fact that the Gospel of John begins with a passage that employs a Stoic term it is just should be enough proof to anyone that these two traditions are intertwined already at the time of Jesus. And um, you know, in the in another book of the New Testament, there is a scene in the Acts of the Apostles, which tells the story of, of Paul's missionary journeys and of the earliest days of the Christian church, it, the, there's a, a scene where Paul, Apostle Paul, goes to Athens. Ooh, this is, this is where all the philosophical schools are. There are two places to go for these philosophical schools. One is Athens, and that's the epicenter. But then there's also Alexandria in Egypt, just full of philosophical schools, Greek philosophical schools. And um, Paul gives a, a very nice sermon. <laughs> And, and says, see that statue? I see you have a statue to to the God that's not yet known. Oh, well, that's a, that's a Jewish God. Uh, and then he goes on and on and on. And then he starts to talk about the resurrection. And people start walking away from him. Because there are, you know, deep differences between these Jewish strains and the Greek philosophical strains. Why would people walk away from him when he mentions resurrection? It's because of many of those Greek philosophical schools... The whole point of life is to get away from your body. The body is interpreted as literally in, in, in many Greek philosophical texts, the prison of the soul or the prison house of the soul, because their conception of reality is that human beings are spiritual beings trapped in human bodies, that it's a kind of punishment. You know, in the, in the Jewish tradition, that the punishment is Adam and Eve get chased out of Eden, and then um, they have to work hard, they have to experience pain, and then die. In many of these Greek philosophical traditions, they, they don't ex they explain it metaphorically, but somehow human beings are spiritual beings who have become trapped on earth in human bodies. So when Paul speaks of the resurrection, they walk away and, and, and basically say, this man must be insane. Who would want to be in a body for eternity? That's it's like that's hell. <laughs> so that's a that's a scene that that shows you that for all of their intertwining, right, the Greek and the Jewish uh, mystical traditions don't always agree. Paul, by the way, was a Pharisee, and this is why he's so happy to talk about resurrection, because he's a Pharisee. He's always believed in the resurrection of the body. And of all the Greek philosophical schools that could be mentioned, the most important in the development of Christian mysticism uh, is the Platonic schools, the various followers of the Greek philosopher Plato. And back to Alexandria in Egypt. In Alexandria in Egypt, the, the followers of Plato developed this, this uh, let, let's call it uh, Platonism on steroids. <laughs> which scholars uh, call Neoplatonism or 
new, the new Platonism. And they subdivided in various ways, you know, different times, different developments. Uh, and there was actually a Jewish thinker in Alexandria, Philo, P-H-I-L-O, who was very influenced by Platonism and, and, and wrote a lot and had actually quite an influence on, on Christian thinking. But, you know, back to Plato, depending on how much time we have left, um, how much time do we have left? Oh, we still got a few minutes. Okay. Well, maybe we'll just have to pick up on Plato and Neoplatonism when we begin our, our, our next segment. I, I, I think I, I think the uh, I think what we're uh, at least what I'm learning and and f from this conversation is is how much influence not only did the Jewish faith and the Jewish tradition have on Christian mysticism but what the pagan uh, religions or pagan thought process had on on it because of the way it affected society and. You know, God, I, I've always looked at it from the perspective that God uses everything, whether, uh, you know, whether it's uh, he created it or man created it, he uses it for his own purpose. So I, I don't see it being heretical or anything of in, in, in that sense, but it is fascinating to see how much God used everything, all the tools that were that were there, everything that was available to to be able to reach people and, and to be able to give people like Paul and and other mystics later on down the line and mystics from from the past as well to be able to reach the people and to be able to get his message out yes and actually uh the early christian thinkers first four centuries especially they they relied very heavily on greek philosophy uh, for their interpretation of the sacred texts in the bible so that's another way in which you know this Greek background is is enormously important. And one uh, concept developed by some of these early Christian thinkers was the idea that the Logos, right, the Word, of course, the Word created the world. The Word, can Logos can also be interpreted as reason, right, or mind even uh, in some of these philosophical schools with and some use other terms, but the, the point I'm trying to make is this concept developed by early Christian thinkers of the, in Greek, it's called the Logos Spermaticos, the seed bearing Logos, that the Logos had actually been revealing himself to all humans all along. And this is why you have mystics in all those other religions, because yeah, people have access to the Logos, which is reason itself. The big difference about Christians is that, of course, they say the Logos became a human person. <laughs> Jesus, the Christ, the Savior. And that makes all the difference for, for Christians. So you, That's it. They, they have access to the Logos in a way that no other religion does. So you can almost say that all mysticism, be it Christian or or Buddhist or Muslim or whatever, all emanates from the same source. Yes. And, you know, this brings us back to where we began. It's not just the same source, the Logos, you know, in Christian thinking. It, it, it's human nature. That's right. Human nature and the human brain, as well as the human emotions and the human heart. Because back to another point, 
from a few uh, minutes ago, Christian mysticism is a lot about love, right? So that's emotion. That's the heart. So you, you, you have two symbols, two metaphorical ways of speaking about the mystical journey. It's about love. Yes, it involves the heart, but it also involves the mind, the brain, right? So you have, you actually have this, this very, very paradoxical, and we can, we'll, we'll be returning to this over and over again, because uh, paradox is central to Christian mysticism, but this very paradoxical relationship between mind and heart, right? And mysticism is not just about knowing God or loving God. It's about both. That that in itself is 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 a beautiful statement, because it it truly is about love. And Jesus Himself said, "The most important commandment I give you is to yes. love." Yes, uh, love God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. And of course, you know that that is a that's a difficult commandment, because you know how can you love a being who is so far superior to you? who, you know, normally is not seen or, or felt uh, unless you make a tremendous effort, seek him out. So in Christian mysticism, it, it, it's mind and heart that are involved. And those are the two metaphorical ways of referring to the fact that approaching the divine is not only possible, but it, it's an act of love. But it's also an act of mind, right? So reason has a role to play and emotion has a role to play. And actually, we know the development of modern psychology in the late 19th century, early 20th century, this whole idea that the human being, the human self is composed of different components and depends on which psychological school you're listening to. But that, that in, in essence, was, was one of the intuitions of Christian mysticism, that the human self is very complex. And, you know, for the human self to merge with the divine self, well, uh, it, it involves different components. But maybe I'll close by saying this, and we'll, re we'll return to this next time, because we, we still have to deal more uh, closely with the Neoplatonists and what they contribute. But I'll, I'll close with this, which is that um, this, this idea of the merging of the human self with the divine self at this early point in our conversations, perfect way to close up today's chat is that an essential component of Christian mysticism is that while the human self can merge with the divine self, the human self is not lost, it's not annihilated that the point of Christian mysticism is not to become God and lose yourself, but that somehow in a very paradoxical, mysterious way, you continue being yourself, but you are yourself in a divine state of being. Which kind of helps to better understand how Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. Yes. Uh, another paradox, the ultimate paradox, the ultimate mystery. Well, Carlos, I think you've given us a really good explanation and, and insight into the origins of Christian mysticism and how it all began and the influences that were that were behind it, uh, both from the Jewish tradition as, as well as the pagan tradition. And 
we're really looking forward to, to learning more about it and and later on in future episodes start getting into the stories of the individual mystics and, and what they did and what they saw and what they wrote uh, which are all I know in other com- com- private conversations you and I have had have, have been fascinating so I, I can't wait to get into those and, and start sharing them with our listeners now okay. we're always happy to hear from our listeners with with their questions and after our first episode we received a few questions can that can all be boiled down to to one question you know from several people that that asked this along these lines and they were curious to know what denomination all our talks our, our conversation is dominating our conversation and uh, i I'll let you answer it in a more theological perspective, but from my perspective, it's we're Christians. We're talking about it as Christians, uh, be it Catholic, Orthodox, Baptist, Presbyterian, whichever it is. uh, It's not really based on a religion, but I'll let you, Carlos, tell us a little bit more. You're the one giving us the information. Yeah, well, what I'm saying is, is based on, you know, a scholarly, and I have to say, you know, detached, non-denominational approach, which I find, uh, you know, has many, many influences. Who studies mysticism? All kinds of Christians study mysticism. All kinds of non-Christians study mysticism. And to become uh, an expert on this subject, one has to read widely and broadly in all different traditions. However, what I'm doing here, I'm speaking from my experience as a professor who has to distill all of these different kinds of interpretations for students. And, you know, I'm Catholic, but I have spent a lot of time studying the Orthodox tradition, and I'm actually an expert on the Protestant Reformation. And the way that I approach Whatever I do, whatever I study in religion, I approach it from within. I want to understand how that particular interpretation comes about in anybody's mind. Be they Lutheran, Calvinist, Anabaptist, Presbyterian, uh, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness. Get it from the inside. And since what I do is history, you know, and I, I do historical analysis before the year 1054, when Catholic and Orthodox churches went separate ways. Everybody, there, there are many other Christian churches, but the Catholic Orthodox tradition is one. And then until 1517, the Catholic tradition, despite all the many heresies that spring up, is, is one. And it's very similar to the Orthodox. It's only in 1517 with the advent of the Protestant Reformation that uh, there's a new sort of third major branch. Yeah, you wrote a, you wrote a little book on that, on the yeah, Reformation. It's very, it, it's very little. A little it, a fast read. Uh, how many pages is it? Uh, if you take out the footnotes and the bibliography, it's only about 750 pages. Oh, that's it. Yeah, that's, you know, you can read that in a couple nights. Yes, I, I, I advise my readers to wear steel toe boots because the book is so heavy, your arms might grow tired, and if you drop it, you might break a toe. Yes, I've, I've held a copy in my hands. It's a, it's a large it's, tome. 
I wanted the publisher to issue it in two volumes, but they, they, they refused to do so. So no one can sue me for a broken toe. <laughs> sue the publisher. Yes. Well, they'll kill me for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Carlos. Thank you for another great episode and incredible insight into Christian mysticism. What do you have in store for us for the next episode? More, more about the, the Neoplatonists and, and the early Christians uh, and the early Christians who, uh, you know, can be either classified as mystics or who contributed in, in various ways to the development of Christian mysticism. And um, key figure for, for next week is St. Augustine of Hippo, 4th and 5th century. Well, maybe not next week, but within next that, time. Next within time. Our next episode. And, and just so yes. our listeners know, our, our goal is to, is to put two episodes up uh, a month on the first, our very ambitious goal on to do it on the first uh thursday and the third thursday of the month so you kind of know when it's coming and you can look out for it when it's there but once again thank you carlos and thank you all for listening to the christian mysticism podcast if you have any questions for dr air you'll find our email address in the show notes just send it on over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode and don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast.